This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week I'm going to recommend Tokyo, A Romance by Ian Baruma. Baruma is one of the seminal figures in translating Japanese culture and history for the Western world, and this is his story of how he first came to Tokyo and fell in love with it during the heady days of the 1970s. A fascinating story of his journey and the evolution of a city, it's worth a read, or in this case, a listen. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. Welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 260, The City That Never Sleeps, part 3. Saturday, September 1st, 1923 started like any other day in Tokyo. The over 3 million inhabitants of the greater Tokyo metro area were living a life on a generally upward trajectory. Both their city and the empire it governed had grown substantially in the past few decades. Tokyo was now aspiring towards being not only a modern city, but a genuinely world-class one, capable of competing with places like Paris, London, and New York. Now, Japan's economy certainly still lagged behind the West. For example, in 1935, the American GDP gross domestic product per capita was $540. In Japan, it was 64 Still, Japan's economy had grown substantially, and average Japanese were feeling the benefits. For example, more and more workers were enjoying union protections which guaranteed them better wages, and, in some cases, access to some bizarre newfangled invention called the five-day workweek, which meant they happened to actually have this lovely day off. Now, around 11 o'clock Japan time, cafeterias and home kitchens around the area went into overdrive, as those running them, mostly women, began preparing to cook lunch. Cooking at this time was generally accomplished over either wood or charcoal fires, or via gas. Electric stoves had been invented, but wouldn't really start to catch on in a big way until the late 1920s. And this is why, when a magnitude 7.8 earthquake struck the area, it was such a problem. All those fire and gas lines and stoves proved to be a supreme danger to their users. Many of them tipped over and set other parts of their buildings ablaze, because in 1923, Tokyo was still mostly a city of wood. Brick construction did not fare much better in a time before modern innovations surrounding building reinforcement. What became known as the Great Kanto Earthquake flattened the region. The most commonly told story about the earthquake was that it was so strong that 38 miles from its epicenter, the 98-ton Great Buddha of Kamakura was shifted two feet off its base by the shifting. The shaking caused a lot of damage, to be sure, but the real problem was fire, particularly as typhoon winds, commonly associated with September weather in Tokyo, whipped the fire up. Firestorms, intense fires of incredible heat strong enough to consume whole neighborhoods, started to break out, 
most famously in the army's Honjo Clothing Depot in central Tokyo, which, being a wooden building full of cloth, did not do great in the fire. That building went up into a firestorm that killed 35,000 people. And of course, all this fire danger was exacerbated by the fact that the shaking had broken water mains all over the city, making it much harder for firefighters to combat the flames. One survivor, Kawatake Shigatoshi, who saw the devastation from the Shitamachi neighborhood of Echujima to the east of the Imperial Palace, wrote, quote, We often use the expression, take the story with a grain of salt, but in this case, the story should not be taken with a grain of salt. On the contrary, this story was too horrible to be exaggerated enough, unquote. He then described the city as a burning hell. When he attempted to escape the area, he found that the mass flight from Tokyo had created a crush of humanity through which he could not move, a solid wall of people trying to flee. He later wrote, quote, No matter how hard I tried, I could not move in the direction I wanted to go. I was stuck in a wave of people that acted like a single panicked entity, unquote. Then there were the aftershocks, 57 over the coming weeks, which required a stoppage of relief work to protect relief workers from injury themselves. And finally, as happens in Japan, the earthquake triggered a tsunami which, while it did not hit Tokyo itself, thanks to the fact that the city is sheltered in Tokyo Bay, did even more damage to the coastal parts of the Kanto region. There's quite a bit of disagreement around the exact death toll. Around 100,000 to 150,000 seems to be the most common set of numbers. Beyond the deaths, millions of people lost their homes, and there was a truly incredible amount of property damage. The devastation was substantial enough that in the months following the disaster, there was at least some consideration in the government of moving the central government out of Tokyo either temporarily or permanently, though ultimately the idea was rejected. This damage was compounded by the attitudes of Tokyoites themselves. The survivors, angered and confused at how much they had lost, proceeded to turn against the most vulnerable among them. Rumors started to swirl that Koreans in Tokyo were taking advantage of the chaos to loot and to attack Japanese, and that among them were Korean independence activists who were looking to attack places of refuge for survivors with bombs or even launch uprisings against the Japanese government. Angry mobs started to attack Korean communities on that most ancient of pretexts. We have to get them before they get us. Though the army declared martial law in the city almost before the shaking itself had stopped, it did not intervene to protect the Koreans. In point of fact, the army was generally pretty happy with what was going on because it gave them a pretext to do something they had wanted to do for a long time. Police and soldiers began using the chaos to round up suspected subversives, Korean independence activists, communists and socialists, and others, and shoot them for looting or disturbing the peace. Later estimates placed the death toll for these extrajudicial killings among the Koreans at 6,000. For the communists and socialists, we have no good numbers. It's entirely possible that the true numbers in both cases are much higher than we could imagine. The Great Kanto Earthquake was a watershed moment in Tokyo's history. The city that had risen from the shambles of Old Edo was, at the time, still very much in keeping with its existence during the samurai era. Tokyo was still a closely packed city of wooden buildings full of narrow winding alleys. That construction, in 1923 as much as in 1700, 
left the city highly vulnerable to fire. Viewed in that light, the disaster seems practically inevitable. Obviously, at some point, a big fire would happen, just as had happened during the Edo period. And yet the scale of the fire, and the fact that much of that scale had been an outgrowth of painful coincidences, it just so happened to be at a time when a lot of stoves were on, there just happened to be a wind capable of spreading the fire, all of that seemed to suggest something greater at play. Moralists and traditionalists pointed to the fire as punishment from heaven, a sign that Japan had become decadent and lost its moral fiber, and that as heaven had once struck down foolish emperors with disasters, it now struck down Japan for its corruption. Westernizers, meanwhile, saw the fire as proof that the city was not yet truly modern. Too much of the old Edo remained. They saw a chance to remake this city of wood in a new mode, to make it truly Western and truly modern. Tokyo, like Japan itself, would find itself torn between these competing visions for the future, torn between embracing the trends of the West and rejecting them. In some ways, the city that rose from the ashes of the fire was a profoundly modern one. Physically, there were at least some attempts, of varying degrees of success, to modernize the architecture of the city, to widen streets and reinforce construction to prevent future damage. At the heart of this effort was none other than Goto Shinpei, the chief political ally of one Kodama Gentaro, who, together with Goto, had been one of the chief architects of the early years of Japanese rule on Taiwan. Goto Shinpei had become home minister by the time of the Great Kanto Earthquake, the head of a ministry that no longer exists, and justifiably so, as the Americans during the U.S. occupation realized very quickly that the home ministry concentrated way too much power in way too few, utterly unaccountable hands. Goto Shinpei was able to use his substantial powers as home minister to direct rebuilding efforts. His vision of Tokyo was a modern city of high-rise buildings across wide boulevards, made of steel and concrete rather than wood and plaster, with parks and public spaces designed to beautify the city and provide refuge should another disaster happen. The largest of these parks would surround Meiji Shrine, built to commemorate the departed first emperor of the modern era with a substantial park surrounding it. The shrine itself had been planned before the fire, the main grounds had been done since 1920, but Goto arranged for the grounds to be expanded and to include a beautiful park space, the renewed grounds of which were opened in 1926. Goto was able to start working on this vision of a new city, but a cerebral hemorrhage in 1923 ended his career prematurely. However, his vision would endure beyond his death. Though the coming wars in China and the Pacific would take away resources from the reconstruction of Tokyo, and the American bombing campaign would flatten a good deal of what had been done, more on that in a second, Goto's vision of Tokyo would inform the post-war planners who plotted Tokyo's next rebirth from fire. More immediately, Tokyo was an increasingly culturally modern city. The most visible symbols of this modernity were people, or at least archetypes of people, the so-called modern boys and modern girls. Moga, or Mobo, contractions of modan yaru and modan boy, were Japanese manifestations of the Roaring Twenties, the incarnations of Japan's Jazz Age. They dressed in the latest, and in female case often highly scandalous fashions, wore their hair in daring new western styles, and were more concerned with having fun and partying than with being either servants of the emperor, or good wives and wise mothers, or whatever else had been traditionally expected of them.
Now, of course, MOGAs and MOBOs were just as much, if not more, constructions of the minds of scandalized conservatives who saw kids these days undermining traditional Japanese values and refusing to get off their lawns and etc. etc. as they were living, breathing people. It's impossible to say how many young folks running around in the 1920s really did spend all their time partying in jazz clubs, having casual sex, and just generally making trouble, but odds are good that more than a few were just putting on a good show for the people around them. Yet in many ways, this image of youthful modernity was more important than whether or not it represented anything real or genuine. Tokyo became associated with this image of modernity and freedom in Western culture, profoundly attractive to some, profoundly repulsive to others. Japanese conservatives, meanwhile, particularly a growing wing of military conservatives, came to see the city as representing everything that was wrong with their country. This modern city living made the people weak and caused them to forget their duty to the emperor and to the nation. In their eyes, Tokyo represented everything that was the antithesis of what was truly Japanese. The real heart of Japan lay in the countryside, and what mattered was protecting that countryside from the toxic influence of weak, decadent, and westernized cities like Tokyo. It should come as no surprise, then, that when the militarists took control of Japan, they aimed to crack down on much of what had given Japan this modern vibe. The jazz clubs, the beer halls, the western-style cafes, the baseball games. All of it, all the things associated with western modernity, and in particular, with this youth culture of carefree living, had to go. Tokyo was thus, in many ways, a divided city split between monuments to prestige and power like the ones we talked about last time, the Imperial Palace, the Diet, Meiji Shrine, Yasukuni Shrine, and others, and a reputation that emphasized many things which seemed antithetical to the values of the government and the monuments that commemorated it. As the country came under tighter and tighter control during the war years, that countercultural current, represented by modern boys, modern girls, and their western hangouts, was pushed underground. Tokyo became the capital of a wartime empire, and the images of the city broadcast around the empire were of things like mass rallies to support the war effort, rallies like the one held on October 21, 1943, in Meiji Garden Stadium, just outside the grounds of that lovely park, to send off college students headed to war whose draft deferments had been removed out of wartime necessity. 25,000 students were sent to the front to the applause of 70,000 onlookers, and with speeches from Prime Minister Tojo extolling them to sacrifice in the name of the nation and emperor. Now, I imagine that these onlookers looked at the departing draftees with pity. After all, the onlookers were going to get to stay in Tokyo, away from the front, where it was safe. For now. Except it would not remain that way for long. We've talked about the American firebombing campaign over Tokyo before, and I don't want to rehash that too much, but it's worth going over at least a bit. The strategic bombing campaign, which was designed to bring Japan to its knees from the air, started in earnest in 1944, when the islands of Saipan and Tinian fell under American control. However, the most famous bombing raid on Tokyo was the brainchild of General Curtis LeMay, who took command of Allied bomber forces in the Pacific in 1945. LeMay recognized that Japan's fighter defenses were decimated and the remaining pilots were exhausted, and that the city's anti-aircraft defenses 
were ineffective outside of daylight hours. So he stripped his bombers of all the defenses they normally carried to fill them with more bombs. He also directed his bomber crews to fly far lower than they previously had in order to maximize their accuracy and to go in at night so that Japanese fighters would have a hard time spotting them. The bombers were loaded with incendiary bombs, essentially cans of white phosphorus designed to break open in the air and spread over an area, lighting as much on fire as possible. White phosphorus fires, by the by, are also unaffected by water. This new plan for how to bomb Japan was implemented in an aerial raid on Tokyo in the late hours of March 9th and the early hours of March 10th, 1945, named Operation Meeting House, which sent 334 B-29 bombers against the city with 1,665 tons of incendiary bombs between them. The Operation Meeting House raid proved devastating to Tokyo. For one thing, while civilian firefighting teams had been organized against firebombing techniques, after all, the Japanese government was not stupid, these civilian brigades were drastically under-equipped and under-prepared. The government had also set up fire breaks by pulling down buildings to prevent large fires from forming or jumping between neighborhoods, but these torn-down buildings had not been fully cleared from their lots, so the fuel for the fire remained in place. And to top it off, construction of civilian air raid shelters was treated as low priority by the government. Instead, that energy went into building military air raid shelters, while civilians were encouraged to build very basic dugouts to serve as bomb shelters, but these were wildly inadequate to protect against a massive fire. And so, over the course of one night, Tokyo went up in flames. Robert Gillane, a French journalist who was serving as a correspondent in Tokyo, wrote later of his experience of the bombing. Quote, The inhabitants stayed heroically put as the bombs dropped, faithfully obeying the order that each family defend its own home against fire. But how could they fight the fires with that wind blowing and when a single house might be hit by ten or even more of the bombs, each weighing up to 6.6 pounds that were raining down in the thousands? As they fell, cylinders scattered a kind of flaming dew that skittered among the roofs, setting fire to everything it splashed on and spreading a warm wash of dancing flames everywhere. The meager defenses of those thousands of amateur firemen, feeble jets of hand-pumped water, wet mats and sand to be thrown on the bombs when one could get close enough to their terrible heat, were completely inadequate. Roofs collapsed under the bomb's impact and within minutes the frail houses of wood and paper were aflame, lighted from the inside like paper lanterns. The hurricane-force winds puffed up great clots of flame and sent burning planks planing through the air to fell people and set fire to what they touched. Flames from a distant cluster of houses would suddenly spring up close at hand, traveling at the speed of a forest fire. Then screaming families abandoned their homes. Sometimes the women had already left, carrying their babies and dragging crates and mattresses. Too late, the circle of fire had closed off their street. Sooner or later, everyone was surrounded by fire. Gillian continued later in his piece, quote, Wherever there was a canal, people hurled themselves into the water. In shallow places, people waited, half-sunk in noxious muck, mouths just above the surface of the water. Hundreds of them were later found dead, not drowned, but asphyxiated by burning air and smoke. In other places, the water got so hot that the luckless bathers were simply boiled alive. 
Some of the canals ran directly into the Sumida River. When the tide rose, the people huddled in them drowned. In Asakusa and Honjo, people crowded onto the bridges, but the spans were made of steel that gradually heated. Human clusters clinging to the white-hot railings finally let go, fell into the water, and were carried off by the current. Thousands jammed into the parks and gardens that lined both banks of the Sumida, as panic brought ever-fresh waves of people pressing into the narrow strip of land, those in front were pushed irresistibly towards the river. Whole walls of screaming humanity toppled over and disappeared into the deep water. Thousands of drowned bodies were later recovered from the Sumida estuary." Unquote. Along with the great fires of the Kanto earthquake and the Edo-era catastrophes like the Meireki Fire, the firebombing by the Americans was a watershed moment of destruction as huge swaths of the city that had been rebuilt only 22 years earlier were once again destroyed. The usual death toll given is over 100,000, though some numbers as high as 200,000 have been thrown around by some historians. Nearly 16 square miles, over 40 square kilometers of real estate, was flattened completely. A great deal more was damaged and in need of substantial repair. When the war finally did end, Tokyo looked like a ghost town. Some parts of the city remained standing. Surprisingly, the Imperial Palace had not been heavily damaged. Considering how close the firestorms had gotten to it, it got off pretty light. However, vast extents of the city had been simply annihilated. As Tokyo began to rebuild, it also had to contend with a new arrival. The Americans, who'd set themselves up after the surrender in many of the very bases that had just been vacated by the Imperial Army. Most notably, the large Imperial Japanese Navy base at Yokosuka was taken over by the Americans. Officer clubs and recreational facilities for the GIs went up around the city at a time when most Japanese could barely, if at all, afford food. An American journalist, Helen Mears, recorded a conversation with one American serving in the occupation after one year in Japan. He'd been a schoolteacher before the war and had decided to stay in Japan and keep serving even after his term had ended. Quote, It's a good life, you know. The British had it all worked out for a long time, and there's no reason why we shouldn't, too. A regular country club life, you know. Much better than anything you can get at home, unless you're a millionaire. Unquote. In other words, GI pay went further in a Japan where the economy, and thus prices more generally, had not recovered. A GI could live, if not like a king, at least like a minor lord of some kind. Perhaps nothing served as a more effective stand-in for American dominance than the Recreation and Amusement Association, a euphemistic organization set up by the Japanese government to service the more carnal needs of their new occupiers. The government actually drafted prostitutes to service the Americans in order to protect the chaste virtue of pure Japanese women. The RAA was eventually shut down pretty early in the occupation by the Americans, who wisely saw the idea of their soldiers being provided free prostitutes by the country they were reforming as a bit of a PR liability. However, prostitution remained a feature of the occupation, and brothels that served the Americans were a visible mark in the city that showed who was calling the shots now. And to top it all off, serving this new American-dominated hierarchy were many of the same people who had led the country into war in the first place, or who had at least stood passively by during the descent towards war. 
Military leaders had been purged, but many of the civilians, especially civilian bureaucrats who'd served the war effort, remained on to serve the Americans. All of this was an enormous shock to the residents of the city, who saw their reality turned upside down in a matter of months. Author Kyogoku Natsuhiko put these words into the mouth of one of his characters, an ex-serviceman returning home after the war. Quote, Everything we had believed was now proven wrong. When we attacked the enemy, they told us we were glorious balls of fire. When soldiers died, they said it was like the breaking of jewels. The government continuously preached the justness of the national struggle. But when it was all over, the attitudes of our leaders changed overnight, becoming devotees of democracy, while Japanese citizens, impoverished people, appeared to be more animated than ever, unquote. Of course, not everybody was upset about it. Kurosawa Akira, at the time still a relatively novice director, recalled walking home after hearing the official announcement of surrender, quote, People on the shopping streets looked cheerful, as if a festival were about to take place, unquote. And I think these contrasting views do a lot to capture the mood of post-war Tokyo. On the one hand, things were absolutely very somber. Huge swaths of the city remained in ruins for years after the war, and the rubble wasn't actually totally cleared until the 1950s. Until it was, the ruins remained home to the destitute and homeless, especially injured veterans of the imperial military who were too hurt to work, but whose disability pensions had gone the way of the dinosaur with the dissolution of the old army and navy ministries which had managed them. The specter of begging veterans trying to scrape by in the ruins of the capital is another one of those enduring images of post-war Tokyo. More generally, the war left its toll on the city in the form of missing and presumed dead relatives. Ueno Park, home to a sizable statue of Saigo Takamori, took up a role it had held once before in 1923. The Saigo statue was the site of a notice board used by families hoping to find their missing relatives. The other symbol of the city's economic hardship was, of course, the black market. Conservative estimates suggest somewhere north of 60,000 black market stalls across Tokyo by 1946, fueled by a two-tiered system of economic distribution. American troops received supplies, meat, vegetables, nice cloth, so on, from America, and often made a great deal of money selling those things to Japanese who did not, in fact, have access to American military stockpiles. Alternatively, the Japanese girlfriends-slash-companions of those GIs got the items as gifts and sold them along. Those items were then marked up substantially and sold to regular Japanese who might otherwise not have a chance to buy them. The stores laid aside for the final battle against the Allies by the Japanese government also found their way onto the black market. Both of these supply streams and the black market vendors who put them on the market helped create a new underground economy that thrived through the occupation. If you're curious, the largest black markets in Tokyo were in Skiji, a wharf district known for its fish market, Shibuya, a Yamanote district that is quite trendy today, but which at the time was dominated by Taiwanese residents who ran the area's black market, and Shinjuku, also today a trendy Yamanote district, at the time far more bohemian and beatnik. This thriving black market in turn gave birth to a revived system of organized crime. The Yakuza came back with a vengeance after their suppression by the imperial government. Food shortages remained endemic. The anniversary of the surrender in 1946 was marked by a demonstration in the streets of Tokyo with a simple name, Give Us Rice. And yet, 
Even with all this despair and devastation, there was also an atmosphere of hope. The first open elections held under the Americans in 1946 and 47 saw a turnout in a bombed-out ruin of a country hit the 70% mark. In the 1947 election, a wave of popular enthusiasm did something unthinkable just a few years before and swept a socialist government into power. Clearly, there was enthusiasm for the idea of democratic open government, and, judging by the massive crowds that greeted political prisoners who were being freed from Sugamo prison by the Americans, for a more open political process in general. More mundanely, theaters for those Japanese who had cash to spare and who wanted something more exciting than the old wartime diet of imperial propaganda cropped up around the cities. Shinjuku's Teitoza Theater became infamous among Americans as well as locals after it started hosting a, by all accounts, relatively tame strip show called The Birth of Venus, I assume a tasteful homage to the works and talents of Renaissance painter Sandro Botticelli. Cinemas cropped up around the city and pre-existing theaters rebranded to match the new trends of the time. Japanese flocked to see American and European films which had previously been banned in underground film houses that had gotten, shall we say, less than entirely legal copies. It was, in other words, a time of struggle, but also a time of freedom. A difficult time for Tokyo, but also a moment of opportunity. Next week, we'll explore the ways in which that opportunity was seized, and how Tokyo was reborn into what it is today in the wake of the war. For now, though, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Karen Iverson and Sarah Wilson for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for the fourth and final installment of this particular series.